Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest Bonus Edition. October 16th, 2022, the midterms in Michigan and Arizona edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time with John Dickerson from also from Washington, D.C., where he is, happens to be situated at the moment. Hello, John. Hello, David. And by Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. Today, we're doing a bonus episode of the GabFest. We're going to go deep on two contentious states, Arizona and Michigan, and talk about how their elections are unfurling. This is the first of two such bonus episodes we're going to be doing uh, as we build up to the election. So welcome to our bonus episode. And before we get going, don't forget if you are in Atlanta or can be near Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd at seven o'clock, we're doing a live show at Georgia Tech's first center for the arts, slate.com slash GabFest live to get tickets for our live show on Wednesday, November 2nd. We are joined for our first segment by Craig Mauger. Craig covers state government and politics in Michigan for the Detroit News. Uh, Craig, thanks for coming to the GabFest. Hey, thank you so much for having me today. You have um, no Senate race, so that that makes you unusual in Michigan, but you have contentious and tight races for governor, attorney general, and secretary of state. And in each case, you have a Democratic incumbent going up against a, a Trump-favoring Republican. Three weeks out, how do those three races sit broadly just to just give us a sort of backgrounder on it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the Democrats have maintained a large financial advantage in all three of these races. In the early polling, they had wide leads. Uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, who's going to be at the top of the ticket, was up 17 points in our most recent poll. However, 12 percent of the voters in that poll were undecided. And there have been some polls that have happened since then that have shown the race tightening. Uh, there's a good chance that this race is going to be within single digits very possibly because in Michigan, these contests usually are tight and they usually close in the in the final weeks in favor of Republicans. The voters who are left there kind of in the middle tend in our past elections to break to the GOP side. So that's kind of what we're all watching. How tight does that race at the top of the ticket get? And if that race gets, you know, within six points, there is a chance that the Republicans could pull across the line some GOP candidates further down the ticket, like the GOP candidate for attorney general, Matt DiPerno, and the secretary of state candidate, Christina Caramo, who are two individuals who have been heavily backed by Donald Trump and who rose to prominence, uh, essentially making false and unproven claims about the last presidential election. So you have this, as you've been describing, kind of all MAGA, all star ticket in these three races. And then you have these Democratic incumbents. What are the points of weaknesses for the Democrats, you know, for these undecided voters who may see the Republican candidates as kind of sketchy and extreme, given their election denying and other stances? Why would they be up for grabs like this? Three things primarily. Two of them are linked together. One is the economy, inflation, rising gas prices. I mean, what's happening right now in our state? Gas is now up a dollar over where it was a year ago. Gas prices are continuing to rise. There are signs that 
abortion, which had been the dominant issue in polling in our state, is fading a little bit in voters' minds as we get further from the Roe decision, and the economy is moving more into the forefront. And if you look at all the jobs numbers for the Midwest, Michigan has been lagging behind other states when it comes to job recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. So the more and more Republicans can push this conversation to the economy and away from issues like democracy, like uh, abortion, it's probably going to be in their favor. Another factor that I would throw out there is our attorney general uh, is Dana Nessel. She's a Democrat. She's a very progressive Democrat. In all of the polling and in her 2018 race, she usually underperforms Gretchen Whitmer by six points. It's almost exactly six points. In all the polling in the last election, uh, Whitmer won by nine, Nessel won by three. So if Gretchen Whitmer wins by six, what happens in this attorney general race between Dana Nessel, the Democratic nominee, and Matt DiPerno, who is this lawyer who basically gained the political spotlight based on one thing, challenging election results in a obscure northern Michigan county that Trump won. But there was a human error that made it look initially in the night like uh, Joe Biden had won the county. They realized that the clerk's staff had made a mistakes. And when they corrected the mistakes, Trump won the county. But since then, DiPerno has leveled all kinds of claims that this was because of computer hacking or because of some other obscure uh, reason that uh, remains a mystery to me exactly what some of his allegations are. But this is how he became a star in Republican politics. It's how he got Donald Trump's endorsement. And, and there is a chance that uh, this race for governor is going to tighten and Matt DiPerno could benefit from that and end up winning on November 8th. So, Craig, the other um, state we're looking at today is Arizona. What what Arizona and Michigan share is they had Republicans within the state who pushed back against Trump and Trumpism and held the line and are responsible for, um, you know, some bravery when many, many others in their party didn't show that. Now Arizona has completely cra- gone the way of Trump and Trumpism. Um, has Michigan, the Michigan Republican Party, gone completely that way? I know these three nominees um are in the Trump Trumpism camp, but has the Republican Party completely uh, moved over in Michigan? Yeah, I would say right now the Michigan Republican Party is completely aligned with Donald Trump. I mean, you kind of have this dichotomy of who are the people running the party? Who are the delegates that show up for state convention and vote on their nominees for certain offices? And those people are very closely aligned with Trump. Uh, I would suspect that Trump remains the most powerful force among those kind of party insiders that run the GOP apparatus in Michigan. When it comes to the broader primary electorate, uh, I, I would say that there, there's more weakness for Trump there from what I have seen, but he's still a powerful force. I mean, Tudor Dixon, the gubernatorial nominee, she was winning the Republican primary before Trump came in and endorsed her. But when Trump came in and endorsed her, it kind of ignited her campaign even further. And she dominated uh, the primary on August 2nd. One of the things that I find interesting, Craig, is that so in these three prominent races, uh, governor, AG, secretary of state, five of the six candidates are women. Is there anything in Michigan politics that makes it uh, particularly accessible to women? Yeah, I, I think in 2018, uh, Democrats had success running three female candidates at the top of the ticket. Gretchen Wimmer, Dana Nessel, and Jocelyn Benson. They all won. They won uh, 
because of female turnout was very high. Women were uh, motivated to vote in 2018. There was pushback against Donald Trump. And then when it came to 2020 on the GOP side, they looked at what happened in 2018. And literally, I mean, an argument that Tudor Dixon made was, hey, I'm the best person to go up against Gretchen Whitmer. I can make arguments. I can challenge her on some of these issues that are social issues that she's been running on as a woman, and I can make the arguments better than the Republican candidate, the the male Republican candidates who were running against her in the primary. So I think you had this happen in 2018. And what happened with the GOP ticket since then is a response to 2018. Craig, let's talk a little bit about about some of the House races um, in Michigan. Do you think that they are um, connected to the same forces that we've been talking about in the three statewide races? Um, or do we, or do we think that there's, I guess I'm thinking about like, I mean, you have incumbency in those issues, but I've been thinking about races to watch in Michigan, the third, seventh, 10th and eighth are there and pick <laughs> yeah. any one of those, pick any one of those. I like the, I like the fourth and fifth, John. Pick any I one personally. of those. Or, Craig, don't listen to them. If, are are those the ones t- to watch? Are you watching another one? Um, I guess what I want, would love from you is kind of a like viewer's guide for our audience. So is there one of those races you're focused on? And is there a kind of a theme in it that you think is up for testing on election night? Yeah, I think the when it comes to the four congressional races that you identified are four that all could be competitive. They're all seeing a lot of advertising from both sides. I, I would I would speak about two races in particular, the the seventh between Alyssa Slotkin and Tom Barrett. As of right now, from tracking that's been put out there, that is the most expensive U.S. House race in the entire country right now. Alyssa Slotkin is a Democrat who has won competitive races before. She is moderate. She's run from the middle. Tom Barrett is in many is a GOP hero among Republicans in Michigan. He's been in the state legislature. He's won a lot of swing districts in the state legislature. And now these two people who are rising stars in Michigan politics, I mean, these are both people that could run for governor one day, run for the U.S. Senate one day. They're now squaring off. They're drawing all of this money and it's going to be a very close race. The only other one that I would throw out there, and it has some similarities to the the seventh race, is the 10th district race with John James. He was a U.S. Senate candidate here the two previous cycles. He's very much considered the GOP superhero in Michigan. Uh, he is going up against a longtime judge, a longtime person involved in politics in Macomb County, Carl Marlinga, who's the Democrat. The polling has suggested John James is is in the lead. But I throw out those two races because John James and Tom Barrett, when I talk to Republican volunteers, Republican staff, the people that have been out there doing the work in the GOP for years and years, the people who want to see the Republican Party win but aren't necessarily convinced that Donald Trump is the path forward for the Republican Party, those people focus on these races. They they are all in on trying to get Tom Barrett and John James across the line. When they talk privately, they kind of say, you know, I don't know about these people we're nominating at the top of the ticket. They're pretty pretty. They're extreme. But these are the two guys that I really want to see win. So those are going to be battles uh, in both of those races. If Republicans lose at the top of the ticket, but can salvage John James and Tom Barrett winning, that's a path forward for the party. So those are some races to really watch. 
So essentially the Glenn Youngkin of Michigan. That's the way people talk about Youngkin. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, these are two people who have been able to still succeed in the Republican Party without going full on in Trumpism. Craig Mogger covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. Craig, thanks for coming on this GabFest Extra, Extra, Extra. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Now we're going to pivot to Arizona, and we are joined by Yvonne Winget Sanchez, who's a reporter who covers Arizona issues for the Washington Post, uh, which I imagine, even though you work for a Washington newspaper, that is like a full-time job these days to cover Arizona issues. You probably have like a seven-person Washington Post team just covering Arizona, given what's going on, which is why we wanted to talk to you about it. So, Yvonne, why is Arizona ground zero for a certain kind of uh, fervent election denier these days? So we've had sort of a, an odd, some would say extreme strain that has run through um, our state's politics for many, many decades. This is really the latest iteration of it. We saw sort of a full-fledged um, attack by Republicans for many years on the immigration front. Now, like elsewhere, it's election denialism. And this time here in Arizona obviously collided with Trump's presidency, but a lot of this grassroots energy has always sort of been either brewing just under the surface or peaking peaking out. So full-throated, November's really going to be a test of, uh, are we going to go the way of Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee for governor, or... Are we going to go the opposite way? In addition to the the top level races in Arizona that are opposing the kind of stark choice you're talking about, I am really interested in the kind of lower level rumblings in the Republican Party. I just listened to This American Life episode about precinct committees and these fights going on between more old school John McCain type Republicans um, and these newcomers who yes, deny the results of the November 2020 election seem incredibly suspicious and also super determined to take over the Republican Party and to be the people making the decisions about whether the next election results um, are respected or not. And I wonder what you make of that and how you've been tracking it. It was really interesting because a few years ago, when a lot of these young people came on the scene, along with the uh, rise of Kelly Ward, the chair of the Republican Party, they were pretty widely dismissed. They, uh, no one really paid attention to them. They were sort of ridiculed privately. And in the meantime, these people have been, they've become more powerful. They've been building um, strength in numbers. They're recruiting these precinct committee people. They're recruiting people to run for constable positions and justices of the peace the state legislature, they've had great success in the primary. They've ousted moderate Republicans at the state legislature, like Rusty Bowers, who is the Speaker of the House and um, fought against uh, Trump and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Uh, And, you know, because of their efforts, we are seeing um, a new Republican Party that's really sort of shaped by this very aggressive, um, own the libs messaging, and they're loud. They're 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 very noisy. They are very active. And so, while the establishment has poo pooed them for some time, 
they uh, soon are going to be the ones in control. So Arizona has been such a fascinating state. It also, in addition to having that kind of McCain-Goldwater line um, versus the, um, the, I guess it's it's MAGA, but it's pre-MAGA because, um, well, as you said, those threads were there before even Donald Trump. Um, what I wonder, though, is how the massive influx of newcomers um, in Maricopa County plays into this. Are the newcomers fueling this new direction? or Because there was an argument one at one time, since they all came from California, that they might be actually more in the McCain-Goldwater wing. I think that the biggest threat to the Republican Party here in the state of Arizona are the transplants. And it's something that they've been concerned about um, for some time. A lot of them come to the state as Republicans from their old states, and it's like they land on Mars. They don't know what this is. It's certainly not the same sort of um, organization that they were a part of back home. Some of them do get involved. Some of them re-register as independents. Um, I think time will tell uh, how impactful and um, influential some of these transplants may be in terms of you know, forcing the party to become, to ret- you know, return to those more moderate roots or letting it go the way of, of the more extreme voices. So let's turn, uh, Yvonne, to your election. So you have a fascinating governor's race, a uh, very energetic Republican candidate in Carrie Lake against Katie Hobbs, who is your secretary of state, the Democrat. Uh, you have a Senate race that's also fascinating. Mark Kelly trying to hold a seat Democrats need against Blake Masters, this Peter Thiel acolyte um, who, who with some interesting youthful positions. And then a secretary of state race where you have a, a guy who I don't know if he's if Mark Fincham is actually an Oath Keeper or just like like very sympathetic to Oath Keepers uh, running to election deny his way to to uh, the secretary of state's office. As we sit sort of three weeks out, where do those races seem to stand? Uh, So like a lot of people, I don't make predictions, but I will say people who I trust that are on the ground here in Arizona uh, pretty widely believe that Carrie Lake will win the governor's race. Um, There's a sense that Mark Fincham, whose profile um, is not that of Carrie Lake, may lose the Secretary of State's race to Adrian Fontes, who is the former recorder for Maricopa County and served during the 2020 election. Um, In the attorney general race, uh, we have a MAGA Republican who believes the election was stolen um, and a Democrat who has served in statewide office before. There's an expectation that the Democrat, Chris Mays, uh, will pick up that race. We'll see. And... um, the U.S. Senate race, it seems as though Kelly is in a pretty comfortable position, although I know his team um, might disagree. They are running hard and running scared. Um, but I would expect that to maybe be like a three and a half, four point race. Um, again, Kelly has a very unique biography. He's very well known here. Masters is a newcomer politically and seems to be trying to have it always with uh, some of the some of his more high-profile positions. If the outcomes you just described take place, it would involve little bits at least of ticket splitting, right, in order for Kelly to win, but also for Lake to win. 
What are the issues specific to Arizona that you think are speaking most to those people who are actually up for grabs in the election, the voters? So we are largely talking about people who are living um, in the east and west suburbs and up north, sort of up through Scottsdale, and some of the more wealthier areas here. These are the people who helped decide um, the U.S. Senate races in 2018 and 2020 and the presidency in 2020. And these ticket splitters really want the candidates to not be extreme, to make them feel safe, to send their kids to good schools, to keep their kids safe, and to be willing to work across party lines and outside of pretty extreme ideology to just make things better. And they're discerning voters. They're everything from evangelicals to uh, LDS and um, probably middle-aged, a little bit older, casual viewers of politics. And they are just not happy uh, with what they've been seeing. And these are these are the people who helped elect Kirsten Cinema and Republican Governor Doug Ducey in eighteen. They are looking for competency. If they're looking for competency, are they turning out? Because if you're looking for competency, that would seem to suggest I, I, how that that you would vote for a non non highly ideological candidate. Um, I mean, um, w- when I think of um, Lake's first ad, um, you know, it was basically, you know, you're watching fake news that's not investigating the uh, the election being overthrown. That doesn't seem like an area for, for um, competency on a kind of solutions-oriented front. On the other hand, Kelly seems like what you just described in terms of his profile. Do you think a lot of people will just not participate, or do you think people are... I guess, is it still true that Arizona is kind of a third, a third, a third? And if, if it, that's true, Republicans, independents, de- Democrats, will the independents participate or might they be so disappointed they just don't, don't go at all to the polls? I think they're going to be very motivated to participate. Um, what I'm going to be closely watching for is how many Democrats, um, upset Democrats, Lake is able to pick off and how how many new Republicans or how many new voters she is able to to pick up. She's really engaging some of these people who just have not been engaged for a long time or ever. Assume that none of us know who Carrie Lake is. What is it about Carrie Lake that makes her, even though she is the strong MAGA election denier, makes her appealing as a competence candidate? She has been on television here in Arizona for 27 years. People know her. They've trusted her to um, deliver the news for a very long time. Um, And in some ways, I think by walking away from an industry that a lot of people obviously just don't trust, the media, um, she really sort of, she gained a lot of notoriety. She gained a lot. She sort of became this phenomenon. Like no one really knew what she was doing, why she did it, what came next, and then the past year, um, she has just gone viral and become a phenomenon in ways uh, that Trump did in his early, early in his presidency. And in some ways, 
she's more sophisticated. She speaks straight to camera. She seems in these rallies as though she's speaking directly to you. She seems relatable. People who don't necessarily share her views on a lot of things find themselves mesmerized by her. And so I think that is, that's the key here. Are those people who are mesmerized going to take a chance on her? And she and her team think that they will be able to grow her turnout uh, with that magic that she seems to have. Yvonne Winget Sanchez of The Washington Post, thanks for coming on the GabFest, the special GabFest. Thanks for having me. That is our bonus show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, Senior Director for Podcast Operations. VP of Audio of Slate is Alicia Montgomery. You can follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. And come to our live show in Atlanta on Wednesday, November 2nd, slate.com slash live. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you again on Thursday.